First Thessalonians chapter 5 is largely made up of, in one sense, a bullet list of commitments and duties that every church must embrace if it hopes to achieve maturity in ministry. Sort of a rapid fire index that Paul gives to us in these verses of practices and priorities, we might say, of a church that wants to align itself in the best possible way to see spiritual growth consistently in its, in its membership, in its walls, if you will. And Paul doesn't uh, sort of elaborate much on any of these. He just sort of gives them to us in bulk and rapid-fire fashion in these few verses. And so I wanted to just sort of begin by reading these for us to uh, frame up the text in our mind. Paul writes, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. As I said, this is, this is staccato fashion. This is just Paul listing out a number of short imperatives in this uh, section of Scripture. And you remember, Paul had been with the church a very brief period of time, three months before he was run out of town by some jealous uh, Jews who saw the success of the Lord in the work of the church. And, And while Paul had labored night and day to establish this church, there was a certain sense where he was never fully able to give them everything that he felt they needed. And after he left, and after he was run around all the various places of, of uh, Greece in those days, Macedonia in those days, after all of that, Paul carried with him the burden for this church, the burden that perhaps the foundation had not been properly laid, that perhaps some way there was something that would that would trip them up because they didn't have everything they needed to to maintain what had been established to continue to grow and progress in the good work that had already begun in fact you can hear it you may remember back in chapter 3 when Paul tells us in verse 6 he says that he had sent Timothy And he says, now that Timothy has come back to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and report that you always remember us kindly and long to see us and we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. He had sent Timothy because he was was discomforted, because he was torn up. In fact, he he says it uh, even back in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So this is what Paul had been living with for months and months. This anguish in his heart about this church that somehow, someway, they would be moved from the the good place from which they started, that somehow they would be undermined in their overall spiritual progress. He was just torn up with anxiety that this church would fail in its fundamental mission and purpose of progressing in the faith. And so he writes this letter really in large part in response to this visit from Timothy and in rejoicing over what has taken place and in an effort to sort of undergird those, those basic foundations, those basic principles. And he's laid out his argument, he's laid out his, his uh, key points all the way through this book, but he comes here to the end. And really what he wants to do is he wants to just, with one final note, throw in one bulk sense everything out there that he knows is going to be necessary for them as a church if they would continue in this progress, if they would continue in this growth, if they were going to to stand against the wiles of the evil one, if they were going to maintain the kind of spiritual progress they're going to have. They're going to have to adopt what he says in these verses, the kind of attitudes and the actions and and all of these things which produce genuine spiritual growth. Because as I said, these are the priorities, these are the principles that align with God's priorities and align a church in a way that, that facilitates that. Now, it's not as if every church can perfectly pull this off. It's not as if every church can just snap their fingers and, and, and have all of these things going on. What Paul is really describing to us here is an aim. It's a goal, or you might even say a culture. This is, this is the kind of church culture that they need to develop. These are, these are the kind of ideals that need to govern everything that they do. These are the kind of, uh, the, the kind of, or I guess you might say the kind of vision of spirituality that they have to have all the time. They have to continually come back to this, and to the extent that they fail to do that, to that same extent they will face frustration, instability, inconsistency in their spiritual growth. Because what Paul lists here is not a menu of options for a church to choose from, to to take what they want and leave what they don't, to maybe align with some sort of preconceived uh, strategy for their own personal agenda. These are mandates. A number of 
imperatives, summarizing what Paul knows and what he understands to be what is essential for any church to have sustained spiritual growth. They are, you might say, the non-negotiable elements that ought to make up every church culture if it really intends to produce disciples of Christ. And as you read through this and you understand how each commitment works and how each commandment addresses the real issues that undermine your spiritual health and undermine you as, a, as an individual pursuing Christ, as you read through this and you understand how each one of these things address something that can stymie your overall spiritual stability or the growth of, of even a church in general, you recognize that no church could have any hope of making any significant progress in their spiritual growth without these things. And to the extent that they neglect any of these They open themselves up to the attack of the enemy, or you might say they experience significant hemorrhaging in the lifeblood of their their overall mission of discipleship. All of these issues then are vital priorities and practices for a church that wants to produce genuine disciples. Now that's um, important really, for us today, when it's safe to say there is great dissatisfaction with church and churches in general. And I'm not just talking about people outside the church. It's obvious that the world is not a fan of the church, that the world resents the church and and, and does whatever it can to to thwart the church. I'm not talking about those in the world. I'm talking about among Christians. There is great dissatisfaction with people about their church and and about other churches. And, And you see it from week to week as people bounce around from one church to the next, trying to find some church or some place where they will not stagnate in their spiritual life, where they will not be frustrated over some flaw or angry or whatever it is with their particular ministry. People have a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion, a lot of dismay over what they have experienced in the church because they they read in the scripture about spiritual progress, they read about discipleship, but it never seems to quite happen in their life. And they think, well, maybe it's the leadership, or maybe it's some individual, or maybe it's some program that's missing, or maybe it's something to do with the worship experience, or or whatever it is, but, but some sense that they're not progressing spiritually, that they're not, you might hear them say, I'm not being fed spiritually. Well, what Paul has to say here answers all of that. It answers all of that, every bit of it. If you find yourself in any church, in any situation, in any, any context, and, and you find yourself frustrated, you find yourself stagnant spiritually, or whatever it is, if you wonder why that is, or maybe a change of context is going to change that, that situation, if you have any of those kinds of thoughts, then what Paul has to say to you here is essential for you to understand. Because what he's laying out here is a culture that fosters discipleship. 
A, a culture that fosters spiritual growth. And for, for you and I, it's essential that we understand that. It's essential that we understand the importance of what he's saying here and the importance of implementing it in our life and in our church. And it's essential that you understand what he's saying, that it all centers on you. These are second-person imperatival commands. Paul isn't writing this to just church leaders. He's not writing it to some sort of distant, uh, 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 unaffected party. He is writing it to you. And that you would understand that this centers not so much on what others are doing, but on what you must do in a church. Directives that spell out responsibilities for each individual church member. Commands, commitments to fostering a kind of culture that spells or produces spiritual growth. So to begin with, if you take responsibility for what Paul has to say here, you will find yourself growing. Really, it doesn't matter what the context so much. If you take responsibility, if you just listen to what he says here, you will find yourself growing in the overall culture that is being created from and out of you helping and participating in the production of that culture. And I hope that you'll learn that God's design is not for you to just bounce around your whole life from one place to the next, plugging and unplugging in one church and the next church until you just sort of have a, a shattered array of, uh, of past you know, fellowships behind you. I hope that you realize through this study that this is the model to which we are all striving. That, that although we'll never perfectly hit the mark, that we all ought to have the same aim and hopefully are consistently shooting for it. And I'm hoping that you will learn as you aim at the right target that God begins to use not just one or two people, but begins to use the combined efforts the unified commitments, the, the uh, unified responsibilities, response to those responsibilities of any church that embraces and understands what he has to say here. So let's look at what he has to say, some principles that he lays down. In fact, there are 15 total imperatives as you go all the way down through verse 22. They're given, as I said, in short staccato fashion. And and we're going to take our time, because of the importance of what he's saying here, we're going we're to sort of make this a little mini-series, if you will, on what those principles are, what those commitments are of every church that, that creates a culture of spiritual growth in its midst. And we're going to unpack each one of these 15 commitments and responsibilities that create a culture of spiritual growth within a church. And the first one Paul gives to us sort of begins, if you will, right at the top with a principle and a commitment related to leadership. In verse 12, he tells us that you and I have a responsibility to identify leaders according to their work. 
we identify leaders according to their work or their labor. That's his command in verse 12. To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, we ask you to do this. To respect these kinds of people. Now, that's a challenging word. The word respect in itself it has been difficult for Bible translators, and you can see it if you just open up various translations. You'll find the, in the ESV, it's translated respect. In the NIV, it's translated to acknowledge. In other translations, it's rendered as consider. In the NAS, it's translated as appreciate, and you'll see sometimes even in your marginal note there, it'll have that literally the word is to know which is what the King James has. And that's the difficulty is because the word itself is one of the most basic, simple words for knowing that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And this, that's why people struggle so much with this. I mean, what does this mean? How, how can Paul simply say you need to know your leaders? I mean, who goes to a church and doesn't know their leader? I mean, occasionally people will come to us, you know, uh, looking for some help in the church. And one of my first questions always is, um, you know, do you go to church? Oh, yeah, I go to church. Well, what church do you go to? They'll maybe name some church and then I'll ask them, well, who's your pastor? That'll tell you really quick, you know, whether or not they know that they go to the church. I have a name tag. If you haven't got my name yet, then I'll try to wear that more consistently. But most people know at a fundamental level, they know their leaders, right? Like they just know who they are. They have some basic idea. And so people struggle. What does this mean, know your leaders? And so that's why folks have tried to say, well, there must be some other nuance to this. Because obviously Paul, Paul can't just be saying that we need to, to know them. But I think actually, that is what he's saying. He actually is saying, you need to know or you need to acknowledge or you need to recognize who are your spiritual leaders. Why is that? Because in every religious context, in every kind of church, there's always those who would present themselves as leaders. There's always those who would put themselves forward as a legitimate leader, but they are, in some sense, illegitimate, ill-equipped, not fulfilling that real role of spiritual leadership. And so it's interesting, as Paul gives this here, I think this is what he's telling. He's telling, he's telling the, the, the members of the Thessalonian church not to fail to really identify spiritual leaders. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why Paul doesn't use the traditional words for leaders. He doesn't, he doesn't use the words that you would expect. Even though everyone recognizes he's talking about leaders, no commentary or, or anybody like that questions that. But he doesn't use the typical words. He doesn't use the, the Greek word poime, which we translate as pastor in uh, some places, or shepherd. It's basically a word for a shepherd, and it's used sometimes in the New Testament to talk about leadership because it emphasizes the role of a leader as someone who is nourishing God's flock or, or even protecting God's flock. 
And so sometimes leaders are called pastors in a church. But Paul doesn't use that word. He doesn't use the word elder, even though that's probably the most frequent word that you find anywhere in Scripture, the word presbyteros, which literally means you know, someone who's advanced in years, but in a spiritual sense, it refers to spiritual advancement, or we might say spiritual maturity. And it just simply refers to the fact that spiritual leadership ought to be assigned to those who clearly demonstrate the kind of judgment and the kind of wisdom that goes along with spiritual maturity. They, they demonstrate the kind of life that, that demonstrates spiritual maturity. But Paul doesn't use the word elder here. And he doesn't use the word episkopos, which is another word in the New Testament that talks about spiritual leadership. But episkopos literally means an overseer. Someone who, who has general oversight over the matters of the church and, and, and they direct the matters of the church primarily through the Word of God, laying out the principles that, that spell out God's design for the church and ultimately equip others to carry out the ministries of the church. That's what an episcopos is, but Paul doesn't use that word either. He never uses any of those terms. Instead... He simply refers to the leaders by the things that they do. They are those who labor. They are those who are over you and they're those who who admonish you. And what we'll see as we go through this is that these all relate not to a position and not to a title, but they all relate to a function. They all relate to what is practically going on in your life, or in some cases may not be going on in your life. And what Paul is calling on you to do is to properly identify then those people. Properly recognize, know those people. Acknowledge the reality of the way the Lord is using them in the body of Christ and in your life particularly. Now, this is especially crucial in today's environment where you have, in a broad sense, a, a kind of rebellion, uh, an institutional or anti-institutional uh, sentiment. I mean, if you want a, a darling in any kind of field today, then, or if you want to be a darling, then just present yourself as, what, anti-establishment. I mean, you don't even have to be very good at what you are doing, but if you go and tell people, well, I am against the establishment, then you are going to be a leg up on everybody else. Because that's the sentiment of the day. People are, are suspicious of institutions. They're suspicious of leaders. They're suspicious of anybody who would have any position of authority in general. And the individual freedom is supposed to eclipse the need for leadership. There's this assumption that virtually any leadership is negative, that it all arises out of ill motives, that there's always some sort of secretive thing going on, and so there's this widespread mistrust of leadership. And so people generally assume that they don't need leadership, or they just don't want leadership. That leadership actually kind of gets in the way of what they're trying to do, even spiritually. But Paul understands 
that if any church, if any church has any hope of establishing a culture of spiritual progress, it cannot do it without the right leaders. Can't be done. You might be thinking, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm the first one. In 2,000 years, I'm the first one that's going to figure out how to progress spiritually without spiritual leaders. Can't do it. Can't do it because that's not the way God designed it. Because that's not the way that he instructed you to pursue it. Because God never intended you to be a Lone Ranger Christian. He intended you to participate in a body. That you're not a member of yourself. You're the member of the larger body of Christ. And the larger body of Christ is put together the way the Lord designed it. And he designed it with spiritual leaders. So the challenge for you then, and the challenge for me, is simply figuring out the criteria for properly identifying those leaders. And if there's anything that's going to stymie spiritual growth in any church, it's going to be having the wrong leaders. It'll be having the wrong criteria for leaders, selecting them based off of personality or personal charisma or stage presence or organizational vision or erudition and and uh, their rhetorical skill, or whatever it might be. But none of those things are Paul's concern right here. What Paul is calling for here is that you recognize properly what spiritual leadership looks like. And he uses three terms, three participles. They're all governed in the original language by a single article, meaning that these really are three characteristics of the same kind of person, the same person, we might say. But he, he uses these three uh, participles to speak of leadership, putting an emphasis not on their title, not on their positions, but on their actions, on their behaviors, which is exactly the way that you identify spiritual leadership. You don't recognize it by a title. You don't recognize it by some uh, position. You don't recognize it by the, the, the person who is sort of anointed in something and then suddenly they start leading. You recognize it by their deeds, by the way that they are behaving. And their value and their character becomes evident because of the way they live their life because of the way they function. And this ought to be true whether you have a title or not, whether you have a position or not. We need to identify and acknowledge those whom the Lord is using in this way. Now, how does Paul describe them? Well, first of all, he speaks about those who labor among you. Kopiao is the word. We get our word copious from that, meaning abundant or or meticulous, or detailed, or comprehensive, all those kinds of range of meaning. And in the New Testament, it carries similar kind of meaning. It basically speaks of of a wearisome task, a, a, a hard kind of labor. Paul uses it to refer to himself. You remember back over in chapter 2, in verse 9, when he talked about he was among them, he says, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil 
We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he's, he's making reference to his secular employment, how that he would get up in the morning and he would work long hours to, to fi- provide financially for his own needs and the needs of those who are with him. And then when that was all done, Paul had no family to go home to, so he would spend all night teaching and discipling other people. So literally night and day, that's what he did all the time. And he labored and he toiled and it was all consuming as a commitment and a high level of sacrifice in his own life. That kind of labor and commitment though isn't just something that Paul had in those few seasons of life when he had to work to provide for himself because most of Paul's ministry, he actually didn't work like that. Most of his ministry He was supported by other churches. As he tells the Corinthians, I robbed other churches so that I could preach the gospel to you free of charge. So this was was the normal pattern of Paul's ministry is he would take gifts from churches who would send him out to, to evangelize and to plant other churches. And yet even during those seasons, he still uses the word kopiao to refer to his labor. He tells the Colossians, he says, we proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. And to this I toil, I copiao, I labor, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or he tells the Galatians or he tells the Philippians that he had an ongoing fear that he labored over them in vain. That he poured out his life with this kind of sacrifice and that somehow after it was all said and done it was going to come to nothing. But this was the way Paul presented his ministry again and again and again. Wearisome toil. And this is what you see from spiritual leaders. They weary themselves in the work. They weary themselves. You don't get the sense from a true spiritual leader that they're bothered by the work that is placed on them. You don't get a sense from a spiritual leader that they're annoyed by those who are under their care, who might have some need. They are wearied. I'm not saying that we all have all the time we want to address every spiritual need as the context of a church grows broader and broader. You need more leaders. You need more shepherds. That's why you have a plurality of godly men. Because not one person is ever able to, to equally minister across a large group of people. But, but when, you, when you have a spiritual leader, what you have is someone who is giving every ounce that they have. They weary themselves. There might be some who would approach their task with negligence, with slack work habits, but they are not genuine spiritual leaders. They have a a kind of immaturity that centers around them and around their comforts, which really ultimately invalidates them significantly weakens their overall influence. But spiritual leaders are those who labor. And they do it because they are driven by something internally. 
You're not having to to put a a clock at the door for them to punch in. They're driven because they have a deep burden about the spiritual need. I mean, they go to bed every night. They wake up every morning thinking about the spiritual needs of people. And so they're driven by this. They're driven by a sense of call from God. There's accountability that they will face one day. And the scripture tells us that they'll face a judgment that is stricter than your judgment. Stricter than the judgment of everyone else. And they understand that. And so this compels them and this constrains them to pour out their life. They cannot help but to do something. They're like the Apostle Paul when when he arrived in Athens. And Luke says he was wandering around the streets while he was waiting on Timothy and Silas to come meet him there. And that was the original idea. It would just sort of be a meet-up place. But Paul was wandering around and he started to notice all of the idols, all of the shrines. And there was even a shrine to an unnamed God that was out there just in case they didn't catch some God. They had all the gods represented. And Paul, he couldn't help himself. He was compelled. He had to do something about this spiritual need. And so he preached in the marketplace and eventually stirred up such a disturbance that they brought him into the leaders and he preached to them. And this is just... This was just the way he was driven. It's the kind of thing that identifies spiritual leaders. It's not that they have some title. It's not that they have some position. It's that you see them laboring. You see them sacrificing. You see them toiling. And they can't help it. They're compelled. You know, I'm so thankful we have elders who do that. And I can see it in their life. But you know, I'm thankful that I can look even beyond our elder board and I can see that forming in the lives of other men in our congregation. Before we even have identified them as an elder, before we even put any kind of title on them, I see the work of the Lord in their life because I see what they're doing with their life. They're sacrificing. They're pouring themselves out for others. And so the first thing that Paul wants you and I to do is to recognize that. Recognize the kind of people who are demonstrating that kind of labor, that kind of sacrifice. Recognize it and acknowledge it for what it is. It is a sign of spiritual leadership. Secondly, Paul says that you need to know and you need to acknowledge those who are over you in the Lord. Now, you might think, well, the other, yeah, I can, I can kind of see how someone's labor would define them by their actions. But this kind, of, this kind of sounds like a description of a position. They're over you, not a deed. Well, that would be the case, I suppose, if that's really what the word, that's all the word entailed. But this word, in fact, refers to much, much more than simply a position, It really carries with it the idea of care, maybe even sometimes protection, not simply a position. And so it refers to those who are caring for you, protecting you. It's often associated with managing or leading because it has the implication of responsibility over a group of people. But at its core, it appears to have this basic idea of of caring for someone. 
And so some people have just sort of combined these ideas and they've translated it like some Bible versions do. Those who guide you or those who direct you, which is probably getting at really the whole meaning of this word. Proistomy is the word. It's used particularly in the book of Titus to refer to those who devote themselves to good deeds or take care to do good deeds. And really, in those contexts, it has nothing to do with people at all. It just has good deeds. They're just careful or they're devoted to good deeds. Or if you go over to Timothy, the word is actually used to describe um, someone who, who manages his household. And that certainly has the idea of, of leadership, but it has the idea of care and concern over your household. Paul, even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, comes back and uses the word again in association with good deeds when he says in 1, Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, excuse me, that the good deeds of some are conspicuous. So ever, over and over again, when you see this word used in the New Testament, you see it often associated, Romans chapter 12 is another place, you see it often associated with this, this notion of careful or caring deeds, good deeds. And so, when you come here and you see the word used here, you probably should combine this idea of care and concern with the idea of management. And it implies those who give concerned oversight or careful oversight or thoughtful, earnest, attentive guidance, attentive direction to other people. Paul, in other words, is not referring to some indifferent or aloof or unresponsive or detached administrator. Those are not necessarily your leaders. They may be serving the church in some capacity, and and we're certainly grateful for administrators, but what Paul's talking about here is not them. He's talking about spiritual leadership. And what he's saying here is that we ought to be recognizing those who are giving attentive direction, attentive guidance in your life. They are, as we say sometimes, they are involved. They are engaged with you and with others. If not directly with you, you see it in their life with others. And what Paul is saying is recognize these kinds of people. Identify these kinds of people. And when you recognize and you identify that, then you are identifying true spiritual leadership. That's why it's, it's so silly, these people who say, you know what, you know, I'm so, sorry. I'm so tired of church, I'm just going to sit at home and I'm going to open up my laptop and I'm going to watch this uh, you know, preacher from some distant land or some distant place, and he's going to be my spiritual leader now. How in the world can he be involved with your life? How in the world can he be this kind of, this kind of, of a careful and thoughtful direction to you? Can't happen. Paul says, look, you need, you must, you have the responsibility To look around and find those people who are sacrificially, authentically, 
genuinely, attentively giving direction and guidance and counsel and wisdom. Those are your spiritual leaders. Paul himself describes himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as a man, he says, who daily feels the pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. In fact, he says this is a pressure that outweighed any hardship that he was experiencing in his ministry, whether it be hunger or thirst or threat of robbers or storms or shipwrecks or whatever. Above all of that other stuff, he says, is the daily pressure in fact, he, he goes on, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, Apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this kind of genuine, careful, devoted spiritual leadership to the needs of those who are around them. And he's saying that you and I need to identify and recognize those kinds of people as your spiritual leaders, your genuine spiritual shepherds. Fully appreciate those folks for the burdens, for the labors that they are bearing. Thirdly, Paul says you need to recognize those who admonish you. Those who... We might say, warn you, correct you, which is a vital part of spiritual leadership, an indispensable part of spiritual leadership. This is a word that always has this notion of identifying error and correcting it, hopefully in a, a gentle and constructive way, but it, 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 it's a word that assumes some error And it has the idea of putting someone's mind in proper order. In fact, it takes the word mind, the word noose, and the word for setting, uh, and puts it together, and you have nutheteo. The idea for setting someone's mind right. And so these are the people who are in your life who are trying to set your mind right. And it's not always a pleasant experience. It's not always a welcomed experience because, quite honestly, you've gotten your mind so out of whack sometimes. And they're coming along and they're saying, look, please listen to me. If you keep going down this pathway, this is going to be the result and you're going to suffer these consequences. And I don't want to see you go through that. Please, please listen to me. And you may not want to hear it. People today don't want that kind of a spiritual leader. They want to... They want a cheerleader. They want a motivational speaker, right? They want a person who's going to get them all pumped up and jazzed up. They want someone who's going to be all positive and not negative. And they're tired of people who who are always sort of polemical and always sort of talking about the dangers and the pitfalls and all that other stuff. But Paul says you need to recognize, you need to acknowledge those people who are admonishing you. Because that's not easy. That's not easy stuff to do. I'd much rather just kind of talk about all the positives all the time. Just just the glories of the Lord and heaven and all that other stuff. that's, That's like icing. 
But the difficult part of spiritual leadership is that it involves a lot of correction. Putting people's mind right. Proper view of God. Proper view of their circumstances. Proper view of chastisement. Proper view of money. Proper view of marriage. Proper view of behavior. Proper view of all these things. When their mind is out of sorts and you see the evidences of it and you got to be the one who steps into their life and has that necessary conversation. All of this is admonishing. And it's what spiritual leaders do. Kind of like a father. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and admonishment of the Lord. That's, that's a lot of what you do. I remember coming home sometimes from, from work. You know, I'd been there for whatever, you know, eight hours a day or something. I'd come through the door and my wife just has that sort of slunked over look. And it's like, sweetie, everything okay? She's like, I feel like I did nothing today except for say the same thing over and over and over again. Don't do that to your sister. Don't do that to your sister. Don't do that to your sister. Don't do that to your brother, just to be fair. (laughs) But the same thing over and over and over. But that's what parents do. You have to. Admonish. You correct. And when you do that, you do it in a way as as fathers are supposed to do, not provoking their children to anger. It takes skill. There are some people who try to sort of plunge themselves into that and they haven't necessarily developed the the skills and the tact that comes with spiritual maturity and so they wind up sometimes making a much bigger mess uh, than when they first arrived. But when you find those people in your life, when you find those men in your church who are able to, because they think clearly about the Word of God and they're able to come and put things in the right order at the right time and bring your thinking back in line where it needs to be and they admonish you properly and with the right love. And, and though it's difficult, it's necessary. Those are the ones, Paul says, that you need to recognize. They're the ones that you need to acknowledge. You might think, well, you know, I got this friend and he reads these blogs and, you know, he loves to talk about this piece of theology and that piece of theology. He seems to know so much and all that other stuff. Listen, that's great. I'm, I'm all a fan of theology, but that's not spiritual leadership. That's not spiritual leadership. You say, well, you know, this guy, he's just sweet. He's just, I mean, every time I'm with him, he just, you know, he's got a smile on his face and... He's you know, encouraging guy. That's great. I mean, church needs encouragement. Church needs people, but that's not necessarily spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership are those people who pour out their lives in this sacrificial kind of way because they're compelled by the Lord. And they do it, and as they do it, they're giving on one hand attentive Loving direction. And on the other hand, careful and kind rebukes, admonishment, so that the church can grow, so you can grow spiritually. Well, there's 15. It's not going to take us 15 Sundays, but 15, we're going to have 14 more to go. We'll be here for a couple weeks, but great series so that we can understand 
what a church must have if it's going to have the kind of culture that fosters genuine spiritual growth. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for our time together and thankful for just even for this insight to recognize that while we have a few elders and overseers here, we look around us and we're so grateful to see so many who are in our midst pouring out their life, giving counsel, giving direction. We see spiritual leadership. Lord, we're grateful for the work that you're doing and we recognize our need for it. We need spiritual leaders. We need those in our lives who are going to speak to us the truth, the hard truth, who are going to show attentive care to our needs. Lord, I pray that you would continue that work here among us. Continue raising up those kinds of leaders and give us the discernment to look around and acknowledge them for what they are. Those through whom you're working. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.